pray for Matt and I. We're headed down to Southern California for a conference. Um, I'm going to be doing a workshop while I'm down there, and Matt has to put up with Conference Me, uh, which is its own challenge. Um, so pray for us. Tonight we're going to pick up and even finish the book of Joshua. If you want to turn there, we're going to jump into Joshua chapter 22 tonight. If you remember, we've just hit the conclusion proper at the end of chapter 21. There we go. Uh, the conclusion proper of the book, and a very solid one, we read last week, 21 verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. But the book doesn't actually end there. What we're going to look at tonight is an epilogue of sorts. It deals with effectively what happens next and what it's really doing is starting to set the tone for where the story will go after the book of Joshua, which is the book of Judges. But it begins with the sending home of the two and a half tribes. And so you may remember that the River Jordan divides the tribes of Israel into east and west. And so these are the two and a half tribes that settled, settled outside of the promised land proper. And they had given their promise that they would enter in with all of the other tribes into the promised land, fight alongside them, and then they would go home and settle in their land. And so them fulfilling their half of the bargain, Joshua now sends them home. Verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. In other words, they've done what they were supposed to do. Now, I wanted to just highlight something very quickly there. Notice that it refers to Moses there as the servant of the Lord. That title is used for Moses 14 times in the book of Joshua and then a handful of times in other places. But it's a major emphasis. It's the primary way of describing Moses. We'll come back to that later. But for the most part, he just says, Moses commanded you to obey me, to come with me, to fight alongside me. You've now done all of that. So verse 4, now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
And so he also gives them a charge. He says, when you go, stay faithful. And listen to all of the different ways he chooses to put it. It's very similar to something that Deuteronomy says to all of Israel through the mouth of Moses. But listen to all the different ways. And so they're to be careful to observe the commandments. They're to love the Lord their God. They're to walk in his ways. They're to keep his commandments. They're to cling to him. And they're to serve him with all their heart and with all their soul. So many different angles and avenues. Follow God. Stay close to God. Be obedient to God. Love God. And so he gives them this charge. And then verse 6, Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their tents. Now to the one and a half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. Now, we read about that in the dispersion of the land. You may remember that Manasseh actually has two different tribal territories. One on the east side of the Jordan with the other two east side tribes, and then one in the land of Canaan proper. And so it just points that out to us that they were split into these two areas. And it continues, when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and which very, with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. And so they're to take all of the spoils of this big war that we've read about across of Joshua, and they're to share it equally and freely with those who weren't on the front lines. Interestingly enough, this is a consistent biblical principle, one we already saw uh, in the Pentateuch itself, one we'll see again under the kings of Israel. Um, But those who stay home, in this case, who stayed home and protected the families, are equally to be, uh, to, to benefit from the spoils as the people on the front line. Verse 9, so the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land which they possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. Now, All of that has really been not just to close the story of the two and a half tribes, but to set up what happens next. And effectively, what happens is a grievous misunderstanding that almost leads to civil war. What happens is these two and a half tribes go home and they set up an altar right on the border, right across the River Jordan in, in sight of the western Israelites. So... Verse 10, when they came to the region of Jordan that's in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Okay? It's large. Once again, part of the significance of that largeness is that it's very visible across the river and very recognizable as an altar. Okay? Verse 11, the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when all the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So they see this, they report it, and then it says here that all of them gather the army again and they go to the river to make war against their own brethren. 
Now, a couple of things. The first thing, once again, we need to notice um, the clever storytelling of the author of Joshua. Notice here that right now we have two sides, and it's not Israel and other Israel. It's the whole assembly of Israel and Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Do you hear the division in those sides? We're going to see those terms maintained until this is all resolved in, past, in verse 30. Up to that point, there's a tension. Here is the real Israel, and here are the apostates. Okay, that's how they're presented, because that's how Israel sees it. The building of this altar they see as a threat to the covenant they've made with God to only worship in a place that he so chooses, to utilize the tabernacle and the tabernacle alone for sacrifices. They don't know at this point if this is an, uh, an unsanctioned altar to Jehovah, to the God of Israel, or even worse, an altar to worship other gods. But they see it and they react in a big way. Way. Their concern here is for apostasy. Now, you may remember in the late chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses warned that if an entire city was to go apostate, that they were to wage war on that city and root out that abomination from their midst. That's what we're reading about happening now. And so they gather all the people of Israel to make war. Verse 13, then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each tribal family of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Okay, and so we see representative leadership, and then it takes the time to mention here Phinehas. Now, it's possible that at this point, Eleazar, the high priest, the son of Aaron, is dead. But more likely here, Phineas takes the lead, even if Eleazar is involved, for a different reason. Okay? The last time something serious happened like this, full-blown apostasy in Israel, was in Baal Peor. Okay? This place where Israel, through the recommendation of Balaam, had been seduced into worshiping the gods of the Moabites. Okay. They had sent their most attractive women to invite them, come to our altars, come worship our gods, come engage in our worship practice, which was inherently sexual. And it's Phineas who, as this plague breaks out in the camp, and God basically says, anyone who's still faithful to me, and here comes the Levites, and so they, they respond in kind. It's Phineas who puts an end to the thing by actually finding a, uh, a Jewish man who's brought a Canaanite woman, a Moabite in particular, into his tent to have sex with her and running a spear through the both of them. Okay? In other words, Phineas on the front line of this means this is serious. Okay? We should be thinking of Baal Peor. We should be thinking of, and we'll see that Israel brings it up in their primary concern, but seeing Phineas on the scene in a literary sense is already reminding us of how tragic that apostasy was and the terrible consequences around it. And so here Phineas is involved and then a representative leadership of all the tribes. Verse 15, they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, 
What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Okay. And so they're struck here by two things. First, how quickly this has happened. Today? Already? Right now? And then the second thing is how serious the offense is, which they call both a breach of faith, meaning they're not keeping up their side of the covenant, and flat-out rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17, have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and from which there came a plague upon the congregation of Israel? that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Okay. So recognize here, as much as they are divided in the fact that they you know, effectively are going to threaten civil war in a second, they still see this identity as being significantly unified. If we don't deal with this, then this totality is also on our shoulders. Our lack of activity here is in some way makes, in some way makes us guilty by association. Okay? God's judgment will come on, on us as well. Verse 19, But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. So first notice the offer there. It's, look, if the idolatry is just raging too heavy on that side of the river, if the temptation is too high, then give up this supposed other land and step into the land of promise. There's plenty of room. Come be with us. And I love that because, once again, the stakes are so high, but what they make here is an invitation. Okay? There is a warning. There is a consequence. There is danger, and this is, um, you know, level five escalation but it's still invitational. I don't think this chapter stands as a great model of confrontation. I don't think it stands as a great model of church discipline, of how we should respond to sin in our camp, sin in our church. However, there are quite a few places that overlap, and one of them is right here. That they go, but the go is not first and foremost as judge, it's seeking restoration. It's an invitation. It's an inviting them out. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, if your brother sins against you, first go to him privately and tell him about his sin. And if he repents, you have what? Won your brother. Gained him back. Okay. And so they come, and although it's very serious and they're concerned both for God's holiness and their own safety, simultaneously their heart is for their brethren, the two and a half tribes, and they say, look, forget this. Forget all the craziness and just come in. But the second thing I want you to notice here is how they talk about the two pieces of land here. And so they refer in verse 19 to the land of your possession, your property, Gad, Manasseh, Ephraim. And then he says, come over, uh, come over to our side, uh, to the Lord's land. Okay. Now, if we're going to speak about semantics, that land on the eastern side was given to them 
portioned out by the selfsame Lord that gave the rest of the tribes their land. But once again, the author here is emphasizing the questionable outcome of this. Is it possible that all of this has been for naught? Is it possible that all of this was just a concession? In fact, remember Balaam, where Balaam comes to God and says, God, can I go with this king, Balak? And he says, no, don't go. And so he says, I'm sorry, I can't come. And Balak says, that's too bad because I was going to pay you quite a lot of money. And he goes, let me check again. Let me get a second opinion. And so he prays again, and this time God tells him to go. And what happens along the way? Okay, there's this angel with a flaming sword threatening his life. Is that all, we, all that we have writ large here? Is this God makes a concession and says, look, if you really don't want the promised land, I'm not going to shove it down your throat, and now it's all going to come to the end because it was really just God giving them over to judgment? That's the tension we should be reading if we're reading this for the first time. What's going to happen? Is this land the promised land or is it not? Are these the people of God or are they apostates? The question stands. Okay. And then they point out the serious sin. They say in verse 19 uh, or verse 18, come into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. And then uh, in the rest of eight or in 19 here, only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. Okay. Now remember that this complaint begins with Baal Peor which they say we're still unclean from, and it finishes with another story, the story of Achan. And so they say in verse 20, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And so they say, look, just a little while ago, just a couple of years ago, remember what happened with Achan? Achan, who instead of uh, keeping the command to, vo- to devote everything in Jericho to destruction, to devote it all to the Lord, took for himself a little gold, a little silver, and a Babylonian garment, and hid it in his tent. And because of that, when Israel goes up against Ai, the next week, 36 men die on the front lines. And not only that, but Achan and his entire family is stoned to death, and their corpses are burned and then covered up in stones, And so they're recalling this and they're saying, have you forgotten so quickly how serious these things are? So now we get their response in verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. Now, the first thing I want you to notice there is they begin by calling on God in two different names redundantly, over and over again, okay? We should read excitement in this statement. They're trying to make clear here. And then they say, after identifying God as the Mighty One, God the Lord, okay, El the Jehovah, uh, that He knows our hearts, The second thing I want you to notice here is they agree with the consequence. If we're really unfaithful, then God take our lives. Okay, but then they explain. Uh, He says in verse 23, For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, 
or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Okay. When they mention grain offerings, peace offerings, and burnt offerings, that's basically the sum total of the Levitical sacrifices. So they don't just say we're not doing the important sacrifices here. They don't say we'll still go to the tabernacle for the Day of Atonement. They say we're not doing anything here. There's no sacrifices here. If we did, then may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, verse 24, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? Okay, so do you see what they're envisioning? They're, they're saying we're afraid that generations from now, your children would come to our children and say, you're not really Israelites. If you were, you'd be in the promised land. This river divides us not just geographically, but it divides our identity. Okay. Now, if you don't think the Jews are capable of such a thing, I'll just remind you of the Samaritans in the future. There's an emphasis for Israel on purity. And so there's questionableness on these types of things. And so they say we were afraid... We were afraid that our children would not be recognized as being part of God's people. So, uh, notice what he says uh, here in verse 25. He says, For the Lord made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, your people of Reuben and Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. Okay? So this is what he, they're expecting the people to say. Look, God made the Jordan River as a boundary of the promised land and therefore put you on the wrong side of it. Your children have no part with us. So your children might make the children to cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And so basically they say, we built this altar not to be used, but to remind you that we're a part of Israel. That's why Israel recognizes it so significantly as an altar for sacrifice, because it's designed based on God's altar standards, right? And so they say, no, 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 we were afraid that a time would come when you wouldn't identify us as being one of you, and so we built this as a memorial, as a reminder to say, we also, even on this side of the river, we also are Israel. We also worship the God of Israel. We also will come to the tabernacle and continue to offer our sacrifices there. Now, we're going to see that this clarifies the misunderstanding and takes all of the uh, escalation out of the scene. It, this explanation is going to be sufficient. But I think it's appropriate for us to ask tonight, is it sufficient? How should we feel about their thoughts? And I think one of the challenges here is that basically they say, our witness that we are God's people is a pile of rocks. That's effectively what they say. They say, you want to know that I'm Jewish? You want to know that we belong to God's elect? You want to know that we are the children of Israel? There. That's the proof. That's the evidence. Okay. Now, the reason why that bothers me is because the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus makes extensive suggestion on how people will know that Israel is Israel. And none of it has to do with a pile of rocks. Okay. 
Just think about how many things were unique to Israel. They have the entire kosher law, okay? They weren't even to wear garments of mixed materials. Their farming practices point to holiness. Uh, Their ritual states of cleanness and uncleanness and the need for purification. The life that they live, taking off every seventh day, honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. All of these things were to be the earmarks of God's people and all of them were unique in Israel's day and that's part of the intention of the law. Reread Exodus and Leviticus and over and over again you'll say it'll say you must not act like the nations or like Egypt. Instead be holy as I am holy and it's defined in all these ways. In other words it should have been manifest from the lives that they lived that they were the people of Israel. And they settled instead for this external memorial, a pile of rocks. Okay. I think it's similar today when, when we think to ourselves, you want to know how I'm a Christian? Just look at the cross that hangs around my neck. Did you, did you neglect to notice my what would Jesus do bracelet? We say, this is it. This is the evidence. This is my affiliation. This is the proof that I identify as being one of God's people. Jesus gives an earmark as well. For what it looks like to be a Christian. And once again, it's not a pile of rocks or a bronze cross around your neck. He says, by this, people will know your disciples by your love, or by, no, you're my disciples by your love for one another. As my friend Javon says, love is the brand. That's the mark of Christianity. It's the demonstration that we are the people of God. And we're so like the two and a half tribes here to settle for some sort of external reminder instead of a full-blown, true reality in our character. And so we can't necessarily say that their fear is unfounded here, but they seem to have missed the whole point of how this is supposed to work. Nonetheless, what are they not doing? They're not forsaking God to worship Him in an unregulated manner or to worship other gods entirely. They just want to be known, and especially want their children to be known, as being God's people. So, verse 28, and we thought if it should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which your fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord your God that stands before his tabernacle. And so they finish here by just saying, we would never do such a thing. Now, methinks they does protest too much. Because actually, these two and a half tribes will be the first to forsake the Lord and the first that are taken out into, uh, into judgment because of their apostasy. We're many, many, many generations from there. But we see throughout all of the book of Joshua this Achilles heel in the people of Israel that they do not know what they're truly capable of. And so they just said, we'd never do anything like this. Now, verse 30, when Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Massa, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, 
because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And so they go, okay, we are all the people of God. And even today we see evidence of the fact of God's goodness because we're still standing. Okay. It's just interesting to me. It's so subtle there, but there is a difference in heart. Gad, Reuben, Manasseh say they, we'd never do such a thing. The rest of the tribes of Israel, through Phineas, they say something similar to that, but it's slightly different. They say, the fact that you haven't done such a thing shows that God is still working. They say, this is evidence that God is in our midst. And then they say, almost oddly, you've delivered us from the hand of the Lord today. There's a tension there. There's an interesting uh, concept, um, but it's very subtle. So verse 32, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead and the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said it's a witness between the Lord, uh, between us, that the Lord is God. So crisis averted. Okay. What happens next is basically uh, Joshua's swan song. It's his final speech to Israel. Now, notice as this opens, it opens in verse one. A long time afterward, how long? Okay, we're not actually told. But since we can assume that Caleb and Joshua are somewhat similar in age, and we know that when the war ended, he was 85, okay? And so that's why we suggested it was five to seven years of battle that had gone on. Um, we also know that in the end of chapter 24, that Joshua dies at the age of 110. We're probably talking about decades later, okay? We move forward in the storyline to the final piece of the epilogue, which is the final words and the death of Joshua. And we've probably moved forward a couple of decades. Okay? And so at this point, Joshua is going to regather the leaders and then a full assembly of Israel and give his final exhortation to them. And so verse 1, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges, its officers, and said to them, I'm now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Now, most likely there, he's not only pointing to the big battles that we read about in the first half of Joshua, but also the two decades of follow-up skirmishes. And what he says is, what I told you when I exhorted you to go and that God would fight for you, it's now been proven true in your own experience. You know for yourselves God's faithfulness. And he continues in verse 4, Behold, I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that have already been cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so now he turns to the future. He says, God has fought for you. God will fight for you. Therefore, he says in verse 6, 
be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, if you've been with us for the entire duration of the book of Joshua, does that sound familiar? That's basically the exhortation that God gives Joshua in the opening of the book. Be strong and very courageous and keep and meditate on and follow all that's written in the book of the law of Moses. And so now he takes that same command and he imparts it to Israel and he says, Israel, be strong and very courageous and keep the words of the law of Moses. He says, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. I love the language there because it reminds me of a parent who recognizes they're dealing with a rebellious child, right? There's no loopholes he leaves here. It's not okay to worship them but not serve them. It's not okay to serve them but I just bow down to them. It's not okay to intermingle with these gods, right? He just shuts every door he can, okay? And then notice this, verse 8, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Now clearly that's a commendation of Israel. He says, so far, so good. You have clung to the Lord. And that word there is the one that's used all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 when it speaks of the two becoming one flesh. It's also the word that's used of Ruth when her mother-in-law tries to send her away and she says, look, no more sons are going to come out of my body. If you're going to go on and have real lives, it's best for you to leave and go back to your people. And it says, but Ruth clung to Naomi. It's the word that's used extensively in Deuteronomy for the covenant itself, and it's the one uh, that is in contrast used with the word forsake. Okay, so clinging to the Lord is keeping the covenant. Forsaking the Lord, severing, is breaking it. But I want you to notice how Joshua uses it here because he says they must cling to the Lord just as they've done. Verse 9, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it's the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. What's he pointing out there? He's saying incredible odds. Okay. There's so few of you. And yet you've conquered armies so much bigger because God is on your side. This contrast or this statement of the one who puts to run or puts, uh, puts to, um, I want to read it again. Um, one man of you puts to flight a thousand is used again in a couple of places in the Psalms as being the definition of what it means uh, when God is fighting for you. But it's also interesting that in the book of Judges, we see this literally happen with Samson, right? Samson, who slays a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, one against a thousand, okay? Incredible odds. And Joshua just says here, that's God. That's God is on your side. That's what it means to cling to him. That's what it, we mean when we say that God fights for you. Just as he promised you, verse 11, be get very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you. Do you see he uses that word again? He says, cling to the Lord and do not cling to the nations. Okay. Now, 
there's a correlation between these two things, and I think that's pretty obvious. You know, um, we cannot avoid worship as human beings. And if we don't worship the true God, the living God, the God of the Bible, we will find something else to worship in its place. But the problem is, in experience, we tend to assume that it begins with us worshiping something else and therefore no longer worshiping God. But the Bible makes the case over and over again that it's when we stop worshiping God that we look for something else to worship. I quote it often, but consider what it says in Jeremiah chapter 2, when God is critiquing these same people in their later generations for doing just what Joshua has warned them not to do. And he says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves pots, broken pots that can hold no water. And so there's a two parts in there. First, they've turned away and then they fashioned for themselves gods to satisfy what they are no longer getting. In other words, for us as Christians, it's worth recognizing that the easiest way to avoid idolatry is to passionately worship the true God. To focus there to spend all our energy there, to understand and to know who God is. In other words, the best way to cling to someone who's not, or the best way to avoid clinging to someone who's not your spouse is to cling to your spouse closer, right? Doesn't that make sense? It's when there's distance in this relationship that suddenly there's an appeal to that relationship. And so he uses this language of cling and he says, cling, by all means, cling to the Lord. Do not cling to the nations in your midst. He says, don't make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Verse 13, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now, notice what that is. It's a clear warning, but one of the things it's warning against is apathy. Right? For them to look around and go, well, the job is mostly done. There's plenty of land. We have peace on all sides. We're finally farming. I've got all these things to do. I'll just let this lie. I'll just leave there. And he says, no. If you do that, it's going to become, and he uses a couple of different metaphors, a snare, a trap, right? A whip against your side, a thorn in your eyes, which I think is the most painful of all the expressions there. And he says, but what will it lead to? He says, thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Okay. It's not just God wants you to have more of the land, so don't settle for some of the land. It's if you don't have all of the land, all of the land is threatened. Okay. And I think this is important because we have a tendency uh, to settle to manage our own sins and say, this is enough, I've got it all under control. But the, the nature of sin is always progressive. And sin that's not actively fought against quietly and slowly grows in power. In fact, that's the danger of idolatry, that we ch what we choose to worship eventually enslaves us, but it very rarely starts that way. It's much like a frog and a pot of boiling water, right? If you just drop the frog in boiling water, it'll go, this is too hot, and it will get out. 
But if the temperature is just slowly rising, you don't even notice until you're just boiled frog. That's the danger that Israel is in, is not realizing what's actually going on around them because they're too myopic in the day-to-day to see it. And so he says, take this seriously. Fulfill in obedience what God has called you to. But there's a problem here. The problem is Joshua can no longer lead them in this. And so he says in verse 14, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. Okay, that expression, to go the way of all the earth, is a recognition that everybody dies. And Joshua is no exception. And so he says here, And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And so he says, I'm dying, God is not. The self-same God who's fulfilled every promise will keep the ones he has made for you. And so it says, verse 15, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. And he says, God is faithful to keep his promises, but he will also be faithful to bring about his consequences. In Deuteronomy, two lives are laid out in front of them. And Moses says, death, life, choose life. Joshua makes the same claim here. He says, understand that God will keep up his side of the covenant. And that covenant has two options. You're faithful and God will bless you. You're unfaithful and God will bring about the consequences, the warnings, the judgments, and ultimately remove you from the land. But notice, either way here, God is faithful. God is consistent. He's keeping up his side of the bargain. Okay, verse 16, this is pretty intense. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you to go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. And so he speaks very seriously. But Joshua isn't making this stuff up. This is exactly what God had said through Moses and warned them about. So first he speaks to the leaders here. And now we move on to a second event with a wider audience all the assemblies of Israel. And I want you to notice where this final chapter takes place because it's significant. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Okay. Now that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because it hasn't been a major player location in the book of Joshua. We would assume if things were to be well balanced or if Israel had selected a place where they gather for family meetings, it would have been either Gilgal, where it all got started by Jericho, or Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. But instead, he gathers them all to Shechem. Okay. Now, the second reason why that's interesting is because although Shechem doesn't have a long story in Joshua, it does have a long story in the Pentateuch. Shechem is the place where Uh, where the two sons of Jacob kill all the Shechemites because of the rape of Dinah. 
Shechem is the place, it's the first place where Jacob settles when he comes back into the land with his big family. And it's also the place where Jacob purchases land, as we'll see in just a minute. But most significantly for the chapter we're about to read, Shechem is the place where Jacob realizes that not only is his life far from God, but so is all his family. I mean, his sons are now mass murderers. And he goes, we got to fix this. And so he determines to go back to Bethel, the place where he encountered God all those years ago with the ladder up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending and the voice saying, I'm going to give you all the promises of your father. He says, I got to go back to that place. And this is what he tells his family in Genesis chapter 35. He says, clean yourselves up and take all of your idols and bury them. It's a full act of family repentance. We need to go back to the house of God. We need to go back and begin again. And we can't take our old idolatrous worship with us. We can't continue in the way we were. It's repentance. Now notice how that plays out as we read the story here. Okay, so he gathers them all to Shechem, summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Notice how far he begins back here. Okay? Now he's going to talk not just about Abram or Abraham, the father of the Jews, where these promises begin, but actually Abraham's father, Terah. Okay? And so he goes not to Abraham's time in the land of Canaan, but his time in the land of Ur, before that all goes down, when he's a son in his father's household. He says, this is your origin, this is where you come from, but what he's going to do is basically tell the big story of what God has done for them, and it begins there, and notice what it says here, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Now that's important, because when we pick up the story in Abraham, we're not told that, and the Lord said to Abraham, gather up your family, and leave to a land that I will show you. And it's easy for us, especially if you've grown up in the church, to read that story as if Abraham is already a faithful follower of God. Somehow he stayed in touch with the religion of Noah and knows the one true God, and God goes, okay, here's a faithful man I can use. No, Abraham is an idol worshiper. He's a pagan. He has a road to Damascus experience where he's just confronted with the real God of the universe. And so he says, look, your origin doesn't begin with faithfulness. It begins with God. The story begins not with Abraham on pilgrimage going, where is the real God? Where can I find him? He's just minding his business in Ur, and God reveals himself to him. The story begins with grace. He says, when your fathers were worshiping idols... Serving other gods, verse 3, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring uh, many. Who's the actor in all this? I took him out of there. I led him. I made him many offspring. These are the things that God has done. Okay. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now notice that. Why is that mentioned? Okay, Ishmael's not mentioned, but Esau is. 
So Jacob has two kids. One of them, God gives the land of Seir, Edom, and the other goes down to Egypt. It's tension in the story. Do you see that? Here is the rejected son, and he's got, he's got the land. He's got what God promised to give him. He's still living in it to the days of the days of Joshua. His descendants still dwell in Edom. But Jacob, the child of promise, the one who's been given the entirety of the land of Canaan, he finds himself in Egypt. And what happens there? Slavery. Oppression. You see, one of the things that Joshua is trying to communicate here is a reminder of the fact that the story God tells doesn't always seem direct and simple. Now, as we've seen, as we've walked through this entire story ourselves in the last year and a half, there's intention behind these things. God brings them into Egypt, and there are only 70 people. The 12 sons of Jacob and their families make up 70 individuals, and when they leave, rough estimate, 2 million people. Egypt is an incubator. It's a place where God grows them into a nation, but it's also the place where he allows one of the great powers of the world, to flex his muscle over the Jews until God flexes back, right? And that's a significant part of the story. In fact, notice verse 5, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Still the actions of God. Then verse 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Notice that part's just passed over. Because we're not talking about what Israel did here, for better or for worse. Just what God did. And what God did is on hiatus for that long time in the wilderness. Okay? Verse 8, Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Now notice that expression. It's a common one in the Old Testament for God's assistance in warfare, the hornet. Okay? Now there's basically three suggestions. One, actual hornets. Okay? That God is saying, one of the things I did was actual true biological warfare. But nothing like that is mentioned in the battles themselves. It's always in this broad review of how God has delivered Israel. Two, there was this correlation between particular pharaohs in these days and age and the emblem of the hornet. But it doesn't make any sense. It's totally out of context. That's just the people who like to dismantle the Bible by, by showing some semblance of a different story that the Bible doesn't tell. Most likely, and I would say most obviously here, he's talking about what happened to the people 
being similar to what happened in a room full of hornets, okay? What do we see the armies doing before Israel? Fleeing like they've lost their minds, okay? The hornet is just a stand-in here for this supernatural fear that God has brought on the enemies of Israel. But nonetheless, he says, this is what I've done. And he says, it wasn't your sword, it wasn't your bow, it wasn't your big buff arms that scared them, it was I. It reminds me of later on in 2 Kings chapter 6, when the city of Samaria is surrounded, and the army that's got them surrounded, I don't actually remember who it is offhand, but they are just starving out the city of Samaria. And they're doing a good job of it. Everybody on the inside is dying. And then suddenly, in their camp, as they're just sitting and waiting for Israel to die, they hear the sounds of chariots and horses, and they go, I don't know how they did it, but Israel got out a messenger to Egypt, and they've come to rout us, and they just leave their camp as it is. Some of them, while they're running, their shoes fall off, and they don't turn back. They leave behind all their livestock, and everything's set up as it is. And so these four lepers just enter into a ghost town instead of an enemy camp. But it's not Egypt that they're afraid of. It's God who has miraculously delivered Israel. Then he finishes here in verse 13. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards, olive orchards that you did not plant. What's the big message that Joshua is trying to get across here? Look at what God has done. From beginning to end, this has been a work of God. It began by his choice. It was carried out by his action. And everything you have, you have from his hand. So based on that, verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Notice, God initiates and Israel responds. God has called them. God has made promises to them. God has brought about those promises. Now, therefore, in response to that, serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. It's the same thing for us. Okay? Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we read it wrong and we think, okay, God says to Israel, keep my laws and then I will save you. No, it's the other way around. Just like it is in the New Testament, God says, I have saved you. Now obey my commandments. Jesus says the same thing. He says, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things I say? He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. But the foundation is the same. It begins with this great and tremendous victory of God that we could not do, that we did not do, that we couldn't even imagine that God has called us into. And the right and appropriate response is service. Paul lays out the entire gospel story from beginning to end, our need for it and what God has done in Jesus Christ and what it all means in the book of Romans. And when he finishes it in chapter 12, he finally goes, now let's talk about what you need to do. And this is what he says. I beg you, therefore, because of God's mercies. What mercies? The ones he's just spent 11 chapters delineating. I beg you, therefore, because of God's mercies, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is a reasonable act of worship. He says, if you want to know the right and appropriate way to respond, it's to offer yourself to God 
as a living sacrifice because he's already offered himself as a dying one. And so Joshua lays this all out and he says, this is who God is. This is what God has done. This is the demonstration of God's love to you and respond in serving him. And then he continues, he says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now that lets us in on a little secret. Notice he doesn't say, don't fall into idolatry. He says, stop it with the idolatry. And he gives us two sources. One beyond the river, that goes all the way back to Euphrates. That goes all the way back to Nahor and Terran and their idols in Ur. Okay, that's the river he's talking about here. Beyond the river is in Ur, uh, as in the um, Euphrates. And then he says also that they worshipped false gods in, in Egypt. So they didn't just maintain faithfulness. They picked up the religious practices of Egypt. Okay, this is important because... This is not something that they're going to fall into. This is a propensity they already have. That's the reality of human life, that we are bent towards idolatry. But notice the call he makes at Shechem. Put them away. He draws a line in the sand and he says, this is what's behind us on God's side, faithfulness, and on your side, not so much. He says, but today, bury it. It's a call to consecration. It's a call to renewal and repentance. It's just like Jacob says to his family when he says, we need to go back back to Bethel. Bury your idols in Shechem. Okay? And then he says this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I love this because he's not being... He's not expressing some sort of animosity against Israel. He's not saying, you're all in rebellion and I'm the one true faithful. He says, I've looked at the self-same story I just told you. That's my story as much as it's yours and here's how I'm going to respond. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He points to himself as an example and he says, like Paul does in the New Testament, come follow me as I follow Christ. Verse 16, the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people of the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Now, when I read that, it sounds formal. Do you understand what I mean? It sounds like vows or the exchange of rings in a wedding ceremony. It sounds prepared. So Joshua says, I've made my choice to serve the Lord. And then the people walk through a summary version of the same story Joshua told and says, we also will serve the Lord. Not only that, but they say that they have seen these acts of God's deliverance, bringing them out of Egypt with their own eyes. Not their physical eyes. Not the actual people standing there making this vow. It's very likely that many of them standing there were not present in Egypt. That was uh, that was at least sixty years ago. Okay, but they're speaking as a nation, and so they respond as a nation in the context of what God has done for that nation. 
And they say, as for us, we will serve the Lord as well. But, verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transitions or your sin. Okay. Now that makes Joshua sound like a pessimist. I would suggest to you that this is part of the formal covenant renewal process that we're looking at here. That he pushes them, not because he doesn't believe them, but to draw out their next confession. Okay? To give them an opportunity to ratify and reaffirm what they just said as a second witness. But he does point to the reality of who God is, both his holiness and his jealousy. Now, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, this makes total sense. Because God basically says, here's what's going to be unique about my relationship with Israel. I'm going to be the God who dwells in your midst. I'm going to be present. And then he goes, but you're a dirty people. But you're a people full of sin. And so the only way this works and you don't die is that we have to cultivate this system. You have to be holy because I, your heavenly father, am holy. Right? It's all set up in this way. Uh, and so what you learn in the book of Leviticus is both that God is tremendously present and at the same time tremendously other. That it's dangerous to have God dwell in your midst. It's that that he draws attention to. And so he says in verse 20, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. Uh, then will turn and do you harm and consume you after done, having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord, right? I think here, Joshua formally, as part of the ceremony, is drawing out a repeat confession, okay? And so, uh, and they said, uh, verse 22, then Joshua said to the people, you are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him, and they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, your God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Now, there is some that suggest that here we have limited obedience. Unlike the other places where they agree or deny what Joshua says, here they don't deal with the idols at all. Right? They don't say, we will put them away and we will serve the Lord. They just say, we will serve the Lord. I don't think you should read too much into that. But it is different than the other things we've read. And so it's at least possible that those interpreters are right to suggest that here they still don't understand the seriousness of their own condition. So, verse 25, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place, place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Okay. And so, what it's probably referring to here is that he's recreated the covenant, the one we have at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a ratification of that same covenant, and so he writes down the same words of that law, the one he's been meditating on his entire career as a leader of Israel. And here he hands it not just to himself as a leader or to a new leader, but to the entire nation of Israel. And so um, on top of that, not only does he uh, write down these words in the book of the law of God, but he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, 
for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Okay, and so his final act here is both an exhortation and an impartation of the covenant into the hands of the people themselves, okay? Now, there won't be a unified Israel under one leader until Samuel. For the entire hundreds of years that makes up the book of Judges, they are on their own, and unfortunately, they don't operate together and help one another, but they operate individually as tribes, and they fail individually as tribes. But they have taken and received and renewed the covenant here. Then the final things we get are three funerals. Actually, uh, three burials would be a better way to put it because one of them has been dead a long time. Verse 29, after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Now I told you in the book, that title has been used 14 times for Joshua. Never once, sorry, 14 times for Moses, never once has it been used for Joshua until here at his death. He doesn't achieve, if you will, the title servant of the Lord until the work is finished, until he's done. And I can't help but think of the words that Jesus says when he says that at the end of all things we'll stand before him and we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy that was prepared before you. That's what he says in the parable of the sheep and the goats. But here Joshua takes on the same title that was used uniquely of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and he's been faithful as well. There are very few shining examples in the Bible. David is a man after God's own heart, but he commits adultery and kills off the offending husband. Right? So many stories are like that. The few that make it through without having any place where you can go, yikes, are Joshua, who's held up as being an example for Israel. Joseph, potentially. He might have been kind of a conniving little twerp, but it depends on the way you read the story. Um, But it's very rare. You know, the Bible, for being a book full of people that we respect as being founders of our religion, is very honest about their shortcomings and sins. Okay? Because ultimately, it's not a book of examples and good moral representatives, and people that we need to follow suit. It's the story of God providing a Savior, because all of those other things won't work. But nonetheless, Joshua receives the title here, the servant of the Lord, and he died being 110 years old. Side note, that's how old Jacob was when he died. It's just another overlap between Jacob's story and Joshua's. Um, Verse 30, they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. And so his legacy continues through all of the leaders he led. Do you see that? All the elders that led with him their reputation continues to maintain Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. Now, when we turn the page and get into Judges, that's going to change. But it is another significant high watermark of Joshua's ministry. Not just that people obeyed him, but he cultivated leaders that also successfully led Israel. 
Okay, so verse 23, as for the bones of Joseph. Now maybe you go, now wait, what bones of Joseph? Okay, first off, uh, this goes all the way back to when the people of Israel were still in Egypt. Okay, and so Joseph says to all of his brothers, your descendants, God's going to be faithful and he's going to lead you out of Egypt. When he does, take my body with you and bury me and the property Jacob bought in Shechem. He's very clear on that. And so when Israel leaves, they actually leave with the bones of Joseph in a coffin to carry it to Israel. And they've been carrying it collectively all of this time until God actually conquers the land and finally here they bury the bones of Joseph. What is it and what is its purpose here in uh, Joshua chapter 24? Again, a reminder of God's faithfulness. Okay? I mean, just think of the hope that Joseph had. He says, I'm going to die, but God is going to be faithful. And so hold on to my bones Take him with you when you go. And they were buried in Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. Notice even that part of the story. When Jacob bought this burial plot, it was the only piece of the promised land that he owned. But now it's part of the broader inheritance of all of his descendants. It's just one part of the land. God has fulfilled his promises. And then finally, we get the death of Eleazar the ruling high priest during the days of Joshua. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And so here, notice that the story closes with the death of Joshua and Eleazar. That's not right. Yeah, Joshua and Eleazar, and then the burial of the bones of Joseph and effectively, the book of Joshua ends on a high note. It's very positive. That side note, relatively rare. In the story that the Old Testament tells, most of the time, things are on a downward slope when the pages change. Just consider, um, just consider the, the book of Malachi being a definitive version of this, where basically the last words of Malachi that close our Old Testament say, if you do not repent, I will strike you with a curse. The end. That's the end of the Old Testament. Okay. But here, Joshua's tone, the book, I mean, is relatively positive. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness, that he keeps his promises. And remember again that this book is written to people living in the land where there's still work to do. And so effectively, the message is, Joshua has been faithful. Now, how about you? That's the message of the book of Joshua. Next week, we'll begin the book of Judges. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book and for the things we've learned about your character, your faithfulness, your victorious uh, ability to conquer in our lives, your holiness, and your promises. And I pray, God, that we would take an example like Joshua and we would look to follow in his footsteps to hear him fully say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And say as Israel did, amen, amen, we will as well. But I pray, Lord, that we would look forward to the one who's greater than Joshua, the one who shares his name, the one we call Jesus. 
who not only came as our example, who not only embodied the very faithfulness that is required of us, but did it on our behalf and died in our place and freely offered us his record of faithfulness and his Holy Spirit to work among us to accomplish God's will. Thank you, Lord, that you sent us something better than a leader. You sent us a Savior. And it's in his name we pray tonight. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.